baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Thank you for joining me on KCBS In-Depth. I'm Jane McMillan. As access to health care continues to be a major concern in this nation, the need for mental health care access is not always given equal weight in the discussion. My guest this week on In-Depth says what's needed for better general understanding is not just more studies and stats, but the sharing of more stories of everyday people living with and successfully managing everything from phobias, depression and anxiety, to bipolar disease and schizophrenia. To that end, Dr. Steve Hinshaw is sharing his family's personal story of mental illness in his new book, Another Kind of Madness, A Journey Through the Stigma and Hope of Mental Illness. Dr. Hinshaw is a professor of psychology at UC Berkeley and vice chair of psychology at UC San Francisco. His work is with children with mental illness, and one of his previous books, The Mark of Shame, was a groundbreaker on the stigma of mental illness and how to change it. Dr. Steve Hinshaw, thank you for joining us on KCBS In-Depth. It's a pleasure. Um, Your book is incredibly personal. Uh, It's incredibly uh, deep. It was difficult to read at times. It was uh, heartwarming to read at times. For those who have not yet had a chance, tell us about how you, and you've authored other books on the subject of mental illness, illness in society, but tell us what made you at this point want to discuss your family history and something so personal and in such personal detail. Statistics don't change many people's minds. Stories and narratives do. And my father had a fascinating life, wonderful and very troubled at times, and I thought, this is the kind of story we need to hear more of. Too much of the coverage of mental health and mental illness is either John Nash with a beautiful mind who had schizophrenia and won the Nobel Prize for economics because of his work in game theory, or the homeless people muttering on the streets who are incompetent and are dangerous to you. Not enough in between the everyday heroism, the everyday coping and struggles, and these are the stories. This is what we've done with cancer and breast cancer as a cause. Everyday stories have turned the dialogue. So, The, the other place that we, and, and media is culpable, but that we see the effects of mental illness in, in terms of coverage is crime, right. which is, is a lens through, that's a symptom. That's not the lens of cause or understanding. So to get into a couple of statistics, what few people know is that people with moderate to severe forms of mental illness are not on average more likely to commit or perpetrate aggression and violence. There's a few forms of mental disorder that are linked. Treatment brings that risk back down to baseline, but are five times more likely than anybody else to be victimized by violent crime because mental health conditions take away your income and take away your education when you're younger and you don't have the socioeconomic status you might. And So the stereotype that mental illness is inevitably linked to violence and aggression, look at the headlines of school shooters, that's the public face of of mental illness, 
are not borne out by the reality. Now, here's the paradox. People in our country, compared to the 50s, the time period when I grew up, mm -hmm. know far more about mental illness today. They can identify the symptoms of schizophrenia, bipolar illness, PTSD, ADHD, autism. Knowledge has skyrocketed. There's high school psychology courses. The media coverage has been more informative in many ways. Yet, three times more Americans today believe that mental illness, the very term, is automatically associated with violence than in 1955. So the more we know, unfortunately, the more stereotypes we learn. The more scared we become. The more scared we become. Mm -hmm. What's needed for knowledge is not what are the symptoms of major depression. I mean, it's important. We don't want a maleducated populace. But that people with depression who get treated lead really good lives. And that on average, people with mental health conditions, if they get evidence-based treatment, sometimes this is medicine, often it's therapy, individual or family or group, do better on average than medical treatments for the physical conditions you see your doctor for. We don't have cures yet, but treatment is good, it's getting better, but we don't have access, and many people with mental health conditions don't realize that they have a mental disorder or they don't have the right insurance and there's not parity. A terrible statistic, but a true one is that on average in our country, from the time you or your kid recognizes that there's symptoms of mental illness involved. To getting formal assessment and treatment, the average is 10 years. For some conditions like OCD, it's 15 to 20 years. That's a decade of struggling and suffering that's needless if we could make the evidence-based treatments accessible and affordable. We're going to talk more about that, and and we're going to talk about the the stigma, which was uh, rife throughout your book in terms of its negative impacts on yeah. an already tough situation. But this is a ridiculously huge thing to ask of you in a couple of minutes, but give a synopsis of the story in the book, your story, your family story. So in some ways, this isn't much of a dramatic story. My little sister and I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. Dad was a professor of philosophy at Ohio State. In grad school at Princeton, he'd studied with Bertrand Russell and Albert Einstein. Mom uh, had degrees in history and English, taught English at Ohio State. We went to OSU football games, academic sports. What could have been more idyllic except for three months or six months, or in one case, a year at a time, as though abducted by aliens in the middle of the night without warning Dad was gone? Mom said nothing the next day or the next week or the next month or, in one case, the next year. And then he would return equally mysteriously. One memory I write about in the book is sitting in the breakfast room and Dad's behind Sally and me, my sister, cooking scrambled eggs and putting the toast in. And Well, when did he come back? Did anybody—was there a party or was there a celebration? Did, I don't remember anything. What I didn't know, and Sally didn't know, is that when we were young— Dad's lead psychiatrist had told him and my mom, if your children ever learn about your serious mental illness and your hospitalizations, they'll be permanently destroyed. You're forbidden from ever mentioning the topic. So under doctor's orders, it was silence and shame. So where Dad would go is into some pretty horrific mental facilities. He had a very serious form of bipolar disorder, the combination of manias and depressions, but misdiagnosed since he was 16 as schizophrenia because when his manias got in full force, 
He heard voices. His first episode at age 16, back in the 30s, he jumped from the roof of the family home in Southern California, believing he could fly because this would send a message to the world's leaders to end the fascist Nazi threat. Started off sleepless, grandiose, and went into a form of manic psychosis that looks just like schizophrenia. So d does the diagnosis matter? It does if it leads to the right treatment. So only after I turned 18, first spring break from college, a lot of mystery in my first 18 years, took refuge in school and sports, kept my emotions in check. Maybe if I rocked the boat too much, dad would never come home again. Dad pulled me in a study that April day, first spring break, cloudy day in Columbus, and said, son, perhaps you should learn something about my life and its episodes. So for the first time, for the next half hour, I learned about fighting the Nazis and flying from the porch roof and his serious hospitalizations after finishing graduate school at Princeton, the medications, the ECTs, all wrong because the diagnosis wasn't right and the treatments weren't very good back in the 50s and 60s. Finally, it's the revelation I've been waiting for. I went back to college, went back to Cambridge, Mass, and decided over the next months to major in psychology and work with children and solve mental health problems, my father's and maybe the rest of the world's. But the flip side was I still didn't talk to anybody. Roommates, girlfriends, no, not even relatives, because it was too shameful. Dad had schizophrenia. He'd been hospitalized in snake pit facilities. If I didn't sleep through the night, maybe I'd be next. So it was. I had a mission now to go into psychology, which I've had a great career doing. But until I learned to open up and get therapeutic help for myself, I was terrified that I would be next in line because we know that some mental health conditions do run in families. And that's yet another question. The stigma and the secrecy. Right. Gosh, you explain so well in the book and in such visual, visceral terms um, the impact it had not only on you, but your mother trying to help keep this secret and maintain normalcy and how it ultimately led to her physical ill health. For serious rheumatoid arthritis for the immune last 40 years of her life. Finally her immune system out. went kaput. That's yeah. exactly right. My sister, too, yeah. has had her share of struggles, as I have. The stigma isn't just about the, quote, patient. It's about family members. It's about the whole topic. Stigma is an ugly word. Stigma, say it, the T and the G, stick in your throat. Some people contend we shouldn't use this term because it almost makes people with mental health conditions feel deserving of the shame that's thrown upon them. I think it's a mistake to say we should never use it. I hate racism, but it still exists. I think we have to use the term. But stigma means stereotypes, prejudice, discrimination, and the global feeling that everything about you emanates from your sexual minority status or, in the olden days, left-handedness or your mental health condition. And it dehumanizes the person and the family. So we've got to get forefront of the national dialogue, mental health, its impact on individuals and families, the need for treatment. And it's going to take both acceptance in society that people have different behavioral styles. But even with treatment, not everybody acts the same. The goal is not to make everybody behave uniformly. We need to ensure because these are illnesses that people get the treatments they need. So it's a dual-barreled approach societal attitudes through humanization and stories, and ensuring that treatment can get delivered of the right types when, when people and families need it. 
Would you agree with the statement that even in this day and age and with much more openness about the need to address mental illness, that even having to say that, even having to say, oh, we need to include mental illness in when we talk about health care, we need to include that it's still kind of the, you know, redheaded stepchild of health care and that it is seen as it's seen as separate from physical illness and that some of the legitimacy, if I can use that word, when people finally start to understand what mental illness is, is when we can make that link of the physical attributes of it or the physical cause. That's right. And somehow linking the physicality of it gives it legitimacy where it doesn't have it on its own. I know. I mean, the brain and mind are one. The mind-body split is a fantasy. On the other hand, it's a mistake to think that if we only do this, if we say mental illness is an illness just like any other, it's a brain disease caused 100% by genes. Now, there's some truth to that. There's biological causes, vulnerabilities. But if we say, let's just call it an illness like any other, it's your flawed DNA, when the public is led to believe that, they hold the person less blameworthy, but they also want to keep distance and are pessimistic because obviously you can't change your genes. I think what we have to do, as with cancer and with heart disease and diabetes, there's a combination of genes that are vulnerable, early life stress, treatment decisions. It's the whole person. We don't want to blame the person, as has been the case throughout history, for evil spirits or weak moral fiber or personal will, but we don't want to say it's only in your genes and nothing else because physical and mental go together and the whole person needs to figure out with support how to get treatment for the mental and physical problems that that underlie a lot of distress. Where's the medical community in understanding that itself as a whole in, in that it's it's not just maybe meds, medicines, right. maybe it's uh, therapy, emotional support. Um, are those two areas of expertise talking to each other more, or is it still up to the patient to see two different people? Well, but there does need to be a team, multiple providers. Most psychiatrists today are trained more in medication therapy, psychologists, social workers more in psychological or family forms of therapy. But a team approach is really good for treating cancers. It's really good for treating mental health problems. What works best on average for most people is... Medicine, if it's needed, probably depending on how severe the condition is, combined with cognitive behavioral or interpersonal or family or group therapy, the medications may help reset levels of neurotransmitters and get the brain talking with itself a bit better. But medicines don't teach competencies and skills. Certainly for ADHD, medicines can help squelch some of the symptoms, but unless you do behavior modification, family based interventions, teacher consultation, getting kids better social skills, you're not treating the whole kid. And I think there is better recognition now that holistic medicine when needed, many forms of psychosocial, psychotherapeutic intervention is optimal because it's treating the whole person. We're talking about mental illness, the stigma it carries in this country. And my guest is Dr. Steve Hinshaw, UC professor of psychology, author of the book, Another Kind of Madness, a journey through the stigma and hope of mental illness, the personal story of his own family. I'm Jane McMillan.
What do you say to families who may feel stigmatized when they find out their, since you work with children, their, their child has a mental illness uh, or there's mental illness in the family or they might recognize it in themselves? One can be very familiar with somebody, love somebody, and then find out they've got a mental illness right. and feel unnerved by that. It's, it's unnerving because it's still not part of the dialogue. So what do you do? Well, uh, the web giveth and taketh away. There's a lot of information online, some of it quite good, some of it pretty awful. But what there's much more of than when I was a kid or even 20, 30 years ago is advocacy and self-help and support groups. It really helps to talk about it with others who've been through the experience of having a kid who's really struggling or kids of whatever age learning to cope with the fact that their parent might be quite seriously depressed, or in my case, my dad had pretty serious bipolar disorder. Talking about it, support communication is vital. I'll mention briefly the incredible work of my colleague William Beardsley at Harvard Medical School, Boston Children's Hospital. He's devised a form of family therapy explicitly in cases where one or both parents has depression or bipolar disorder. Now, the parents need their own treatment. That's granted. But the family work is to get the parents to talk with the kids in language kids can understand, not textbook language, about uh, dad's arrest or mom's drinking or the time in bed or lost work because kids know something's going on. I knew something was going on my first 18 years, but no one explained it. What happens when kids don't get explanations? They internalize. It must be me. It's my fault. When you get this kind of family therapy, not only 16 weeks later do the kids adjust better, four years later, their own risk of depression is cut by 50%. Genes help transmit depression and bipolar disorder and anxiety disorders, but the lack of communication and the silence and internalization is also part of the transmission. This I, is exactly what I'm talking about. I noticed in your book you called yourself once you realized that you knew something was going on but weren't asking, which would have been a tall order for a kid, right. but you called yourself complicit in the, in in keeping the family secret. That's a that's a, like a double jeopardy. That's tough too. Well, could I have, if I had maybe a different personality or set of sets of genes in me, been bolder and brasher and said, "Mom, what what the heck are you talking about? I need to know where Dad is." I saw the look in Mom's eye. If I asked, I would be inviting something unthinkable and unspeakable. So. What that was is, of course, shame and stigma that the doctor's orders never to talk about it. So I judged when I was six and eight and ten, probably better to hold it in, try not to feel much, and don't push the river by asking, because then who knows what I would have found out. It must have been worse than I could have ever imagined. That's the legacy of silence, shame, and stigma. It's worse than you ever imagined. But if you put words on it, if you can communicate about it, and it's a form of physical and mental illness, and it can be treated, and of course, when the brain is the organ involved, it's not just bodily symptoms, but your personality and emotions. If you can talk like that, kids will understand, parents can understand about their kids, and now you've got a dialogue to move forward to get treatment. I think any of us would not be afraid of our child who had mental illness, but certainly would be fearful for their future. Right. Uh, but there is still a fear between adults when mental illness is talked about. I think there's a difference if, if uh, your life partner or someone you depend upon is diagnosed because of 
uh, this continuing stigma. It's that fear, the brain and the mind. It's mysterious. It's not something that we you're can acting see. irrationally. Exactly, and it maybe changes. there, but for the grace of God, go I and right. all of these almost evolutionary fears, primal fears. Maybe I'm not holding it together as much as can I, I thought. ever bank on that person again. How how do That's we right. fight that? Well, knowledge is good. Getting good treatment is proof that people with mental health conditions can recover. Do we have cures yet? We don't have cures for cancer. We certainly don't have cures for mental health conditions. But we've got treatments that, in the majority of cases, often the vast majority, get people's lives much more functionally together. How would you respond if someone said, everybody I know is on antidepressants. Are we just over-medicating ourselves? Are we really depressed? How do you tell if someone's just blue for a couple of days? Big questions. And in the work I do with kids, ADHD, with exploding diagnoses, is this just an excuse? Every kid can get an A and go to the right colleges. And what do we do about this? Well, I think we have to start with the fact that mental health conditions aren't boxes you're in or not. They're part of a spectrum. When is blood pressure high blood pressure? Well, we have to make an arbitrary decision. When is feeling blue and sad for a little bit, now a little bit bluer and sadder for a longer time, major depression? It's a judgment call. Brain images, brain scans are helping us get more objective. But doctors need the time. Clinicians need the time to talk to the individual, get testing done, talk with parents, talk with kids, talk with coworkers, talk with teachers. Too much for ADHD, and I think one of the reasons for some of the overdiagnosis is the average kid gets diagnosed after 10 to 12 minutes with a pediatrician with no evidence-based assessments, and it can be a catch-all diagnosis. This can be the case with depression, too. On the other hand, you can often miss it unless you do a thorough assessment, too. The classic waiting room story where the doctor says, well, Billy can't have ADHD. He sat still in the waiting room. Well, you were wearing a white coat and it was only 10 minutes. How about in class or how about on the soccer field? We need to reimburse for the evidence-based assessments that can yield a valid diagnosis. Uh, this is blueness and this is real depression. This is a fidgety kid and this is a kid with ADHD. We don't have full objective measures for that yet. That's where mental health still lags behind physical health. The brain's a very complex organ with tens of trillions of synapses in there. But if you do the right kinds of assessment, you can make a good definitive diagnosis and then see what treatments work. Well, now we're talking about access, That's right. which is part of the national dialogue, it, it has become, it, in healthcare in general, uh, there is ideology, there is politics involved in this, there's money, there are business interests, there's just the pure winning and losing of trying to push legislation. So if, if you were assessing how the nation is doing in wanting its citizens to be healthy, what grade would you give it right now? Gee, uh, I, I hate giving grades. I have to do it as a professor. Right. Thumbs up or thumbs down. Well, you know? I, we're barely passing. And I think for mental health is, is where I have more knowledge. So, know, let, so I'll just mention the term parity, P-A-R-I-T-Y. This is the law of many states, the federal law for some years now with the Paul Wellstone Act, et cetera. The idea is if you have insurance coverage for a physical health condition, there should be equal types of coverage for mental health conditions. Shouldn't be allowed to be a discrimination because it's pre-existing or it's mental health and we don't know what it means. Parity is more of an idea still than a reality. But when the entire nation is still struggling with what is 
good health care and how do we ensure single payer versus not, et cetera, mental health gets swept to the back burner. Way too little of the recent national dialogue on the ACA and where it's going and will it be repealed and what will replace it has focused on mental health. Now, with the opioid crisis, substance abuse is somewhat part of that dialogue, but depression, PTSD, ADHD, autism are really on the back burner still. We don't have parity yet, and we don't have health care for all yet. We saw in the 60s a uh, move away from institutions right. run by the government, right. and God knows there were enough problems with institutions. Enough snake pits, right? Just, just unbelievable. Uh, but then... There, there was no plan otherwise. And so, so many people that we see now on the streets or in prisons, the source of the issue is some type of mental illness, perhaps self-medicating their mental illness. Right. And so now mental illness has become uh, an issue for the criminal justice system Way primarily in this, in this country. People contend, I think rightfully, that the largest, quote, mental facilities in our country now are L.A. County Jail and Cook County Jail. Deinstitutionalization was a great idea. We needed to close the snake pits. Far too many people involuntarily committed in horrific hospitals. But too often, deinstitutionalization without adequate funding for community care on a real continuum, has become reinstitutionalization. And for petty offenses or drug offenses and people struggling with mental health issues, without any mental health treatment at all, are put in jails, and that's a revolving door. And so why do more Americans now believe that mental illness is linked to violence? Well, how do most people confront mental illness these days? The homeless raving person you see on the Main streets of warm weather cities is most people's first and sometimes last exposure knowingly to, to mental illness because we don't talk about it. What about your uncle or your workmate who's living kind of a lie in silence? Does everybody disclose wantonly, willfully all the time? No, it's a matter of timing and judgment and rehearsal and support. But if we keep it locked up and it's not part of the discussion, it's like cancer back in the 30s and 40s and early 50s. You didn't put cancer as the cause of death in an obituary. It was a shameful disease you brought on yourself. Cancer is now a cause. Breast cancer is a cause. But how many people have, quote, cause of death, some form of mental illness? It's still sh shameful. We don't assess it right and treat it right, although we have the means to do so. And our health care policies are failing, I think, overall, but particularly in terms of mental health coverage. We're here in the Bay Area should someone go for that first blast of information, help, if they're not sure of themselves or someone in their family? Right. Well, first, if, if you've got a family doctor, personal doctor, pediatrician, they should know. Some are very good with this. Others are, are more in isolated practice and may not know. Second, we now have support and advocacy groups that didn't exist when my dad was a boy and young man and even middle-aged man. NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, MHA, SF, Mental Health Association of San Francisco, many organizations that specialize in particular illnesses like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or depression, talk to people who've been through this before and reach out. NAMI has a program, I-O-O-V, In Our Own Voice, where coming to the workplace will be people who've lived with lived experience in mental health conditions. We need education, again, but not just about the facts of symptoms, but education of the fact that people with mental health conditions with the right treatment can and do thrive. 
And that becomes part of the national dialogue. If more people talked about it, if we heard these everyday stories, it couldn't be ignored anymore because the prevalence is so high. One person in four in their lifetimes will have a fairly serious form of mental illness and up to one in two will have a milder form like phobias, etc. For something to be stigmatized doesn't mean it has to be part of a small minority. Mental health conditions are not rare as the stereotypes would have it. But if nobody talks about it, it can be ignored. Thank you for talking about it. Thank you for telling your family's story. Thanks so much for having me on. My guest this week on In-Depth has been Dr. Steve Hinshaw, UC professor of psychology and author of Another Kind of Madness, A Journey Through the Stigma and Hope of Mental Illness. I'm Jane McMillan. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program, Sundays at 8.30 a.m. at 8.30 p.m. And now available for download at kcbs.com. For all news, 740 and FM 106.9, KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.